You are listening to Engineer Corner on Mountain Bike Radio. Hello, thank you for tuning in to Mountain Bike Radio. Before this episode, I want to just give you a reminder to head over to mountainbikeradio.com slash off air. I'm pretty excited about this. We are uh, starting up some trips and uh, I'm inviting everybody who wants to join. All right. So the first one is November 4th through the 6th in St. George, Utah. And uh, if you head over to that website, mountainbikeradio.com slash off air, you'll see everything that's included. It includes uh, three days of guided riding, which is one full day, two half days, two nights double occupancy lodging, all the breakfasts and dinners, full access to uh, 2016 IBIS demo fleet. And this is with Chasing Epic. Uh, Steve from Chasing Epic was on one of the previous episodes, so you can dig back and listen to that. Um, but we have put this together. There's a whole bunch of other uh, goodies that you get with this trip. But head over there and soon because we are going to give away a Mountain Bike Radio jersey to anybody that signs up before the end of the month. Spaces are limited. Get in before August 30th for the jersey. Head over to mountainbikeradio.com slash off air for all of the information. And if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email at ben at mountainbikeradio.com. Now enjoy this episode. Welcome to Engineer's Corner. I'm Ben and with me is Phil. How's it going, Phil? It's going great. How are you? Doing well. So we're mixing the show up a little bit. Uh, We are going to have Phil's mini rant. So he teased it over on the Slack group for the the members Slack group, and uh, he's going to talk about that. Um, We are, we're going to do it before. We're going to kind of, what do you want to do before or after mini rant? Let's do after mini rant. Okay. So let's let Phil do the mini rant. Then we're going to add in a little section. Phil wants to... uh, had a good idea to just do a little catch-up session. Um, he's been traveling all over and uh, got a few things going on, so it'll be cool to hear about that. Uh, and then we will get into the topic of this episode, which is tuning your suspension. And Phil, in his usual fashion, will go through and talk about all the details on that. When are we going to talk about the different types of susp- suspension? Uh, next episode, maybe? Sure, next episode. Okay, let's do it. Let's so people, in. people have been asking, and Phil's been teasing that one too. Phil, he's <laughs> so member. If you're not a member, you don't know what in the world we're talking about. But if you are a member, uh, we have a member only group over using Slack.com. So a lot of other places they'll use like face private Facebook groups, but we uh, we use Slack to do it for the members, and it works out pretty slick. But Phil's been teasing basically about all the different types of suspension and uh, we're going to have an episode on that where we'll do a run through uh any updates not really i'm supposed to so we're recording this on sunday night i'm not really sure when it's going to be posted at this point sometime later this week Um, so if you're listening to this it might be thursday uh tomorrow morning I am due to record with Brendan from Wolftooth. So we'll get his take on uh, the uh, elliptical chain rings and uh, just get his perspective. So Phil 
did a pretty good explanation of that, but I wanted to get somebody on that was actually, that was actually dealing with them and so we can get the why and how and all those good details. And I'm okay having him on, even if he is selling product, basically, you know, it's an advertisement more or less for him because he comes on and you get to know all about him and he talks about his product, right? Um, I'm fine with that because it's wolf tooth, as you know, from listening, I'm a big fan. Mm. All right. So what's, uh, what's the rant? So the rant this week is all about car build videos and slash like threads on forums. Um, I don't know if any of you out there, I'm guessing quite a few of you are, are at least on a basic level interested in cars and like how cars work and stuff. Um, so basically the gist of it is this is I've spent literally hundreds of hours trying to figure out the best suspension geometry, the best damping rates, the best spring rates, the best tire size, tire selection, tire compound pressures, weight bias, et cetera, you know, for any given car slash track slash problem. And behind those hundreds of hours doing math are thousands of hours trying to learn how, you know, all these things play together and behave and influence what a car is like to drive and how that ties into the car's like absolute maximum potential speed. So keep that kind of perspective in mind. You go into it and then there are all these people that are just, you know, taking wild ass guesses. They're armchair car builders. Yeah, they're just like, oh, yeah, we'll just we'll make the springs stiffer and then we'll make damper fluid out of maple syrup and concrete. It'll be fine. And like, okay, for example, (laughs) no, well, okay, like you end up with a car that's faster on the track because there's this there's this kind of like running joke amongst the vehicle dynamicists and race car life. And we'll kind of get to this later in the podcast, actually, which is that. Any suspension will work wonderfully if you don't let it work. So what that means is that on like, you know, a very flat, smooth track, if you just like stiffen up your suspension to all hell, it doesn't really matter what it is because it's super stiff and it doesn't move. So it's fine. Um, But like, you know, I was watching this one thread of this guy that took a Porsche 944, which is, you know, like kind of it's like an 80s model. I actually have one at home. Um Wait, you do? Yeah, it's like an old, it's an 86, bought it for $1,000. It's great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Does it run? But yeah, it runs. Oh, okay. um, it doesn't run super hot, needs a new <laughs> okay. clutch, but that's, okay. you know, it's a project yeah. car, whatever. 1000 bucks. Yeah. Um, but he, he took, he somehow got his hands on the rear suspension out of a GT3, right? Which, so the 944 is front engine rear wheel drive. And the GT3 is rear engine rear wheel drive. So that's totally different weight biases, totally different cars. And it just takes the rear suspension and it just bolts it to the back of this 944 and is like, oh, job done. That's really fast now. And it's, I don't understand. It's like if you took the fast ass end out of a fast car and put it in a different car, it's not going to be, like, it's not going to play well. It's a whole system. You got to think about it and how it all works and stuff. And they're just kind of, Throw and go fast parts on it, like the box at ten horsepower, and it's just it's annoying to me. Okay, it so so my better. question is: Was this guy bragging about it, or was he just saying, "Hey, look at this," and it actually like it worked okay? 
No, this guy thought there's it was two different the, ways, right? There's no, like, this guy thought it was the total like he thought it was the shit. shit. Okay. It was the way to go. Okay. And to be fair, like it ended up with a faster car, but it's just there's so little knowledge of what actually makes it work and you know what actually like makes things happen. Like when you have people that just kind of throw sway bars at a thing and go, yeah, it's faster now. It's like, well, you know, you're not talking about handling balance. You're not talking about maximum grip, understeer, oversteer balance, like roll centers. You know, you don't know how any of that works. So it, you're just kind of like throwing, you're, you're throwing darts at a dartboard blindfolded and then calling, you know, pat yourself on the back when you get a bullseye. It's like, well, yeah, because you got lucky a bit, but come on, you don't know what you're doing. It sounds like these guys probably wouldn't know even when they put this, like that rear end into that other car in the 944, he wouldn't know the difference anyway, it sounds like. Right. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> God. It's just, it's a source of, because I feel like almost it's not to sound too pretentious, but it's a little bit like disrespectful, you know, because I put all this emphasis on this work and figuring out like how the best way to do it. And they're like, yeah, it just yeah, kind of wing it and see what happens. And it's I mean, like, it's, oh man. I, I wouldn't even say it's, Okay, it's maybe a little car snob, right? But you've sure. put that you you're educated on it, so I wouldn't even call it pretentious because this this goes down to every type of recreation there is. You see it in bikes all the time. We're all bike snobs. If you've ridden any amount of time, there's a certain level of bike snob that you are, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. You you develop your the the bikes that you like, and you um you find the suspension that works for you, find the specific brand that you, you just get good feeling from and you like the tires. Right. And then if somebody comes along and sells something at Kmart or Kmart kind of barely around anywhere, Walmart or Target <laughs> or whatever. Um, well, there was a Kmart in my hometown when we were, it, they built it. I don't know when I was young teens or something. Um, so it was a big deal. Um, but my point is that we, we are all kind of like that mm. to a certain point, you know, some are more than others, whatever. Some make a point of being it. Um, but you see it in other industries too. So I go back to the archery, right? You see the same thing. If somebody has been doing it for 10 years and they know all, you know, the best tricks of the trade for them and how it works, you see it with them with, with different products and new products or people trying different things that just aren't, they know aren't going to work, but some people have to go through the process the problem is, is with these type of videos or social media, it's not even a problem. It's a good thing is social media videos and all that stuff. It just weeds out the dumb people right away. So right. instead of like having to go to like a car club or something to then talk to this guy for two minutes and then learn that you just need to walk away from him because he's dumb. Like you get to see it in a video before you even have to even talk to the guy. <laughs> right yeah and so, yeah. and be- before let me put my flame suit on like before you know people <laughs> got all mad um i just want to like point out that i definitely appreciate all like the time and effort that goes into these builds and like the yeah. craftsman because the actual craftsmanship is fascinating like you know some guy that welds an engine mount out of sheet metal that takes skill and it takes practice and i really you know it's cool but just I don't know. There's a lot of. I guess it's kind of like if you ever heard Matt from JRA his rant about like custom bike builds. It just they leave a lot of stuff on the table sometimes, and it's frustrating to watch. Yeah, it's like all the fat when uh, fat bikes kind of the 
you know, five years ago, four years ago, people trying to build full suspension fat bikes. Mm-hmm. Really good. Like you took the rear end off of this and you welded up some aluminum and kind of finagled it to work. And now you have a full suspension fat bike. It's not exactly the best option. It's really like good for you for putting it together and making it work, but doesn't mean it's good. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, huh. So do you have a couple videos that are people that you follow and videos that you do like? Yeah. I mean, so I really like, um, the slash drive network as well as smoking tire with Matt Farah and regular car reviews, regular car reviews. gets pretty vulgar sometimes, but (laughs) it's very amusing. Um, and the guy kind of like he, he, so, okay. A lot of people in the car journalism life, you know, they will tell you about horsepowers and tire pressures and all this shit, right? About like they approach it from a very sort of common perspective. But the guy at Regular Car Reviews or RCR, he was actually an English major. Excuse me. So he approaches it almost like a sociological kind of thing. So he'll kind of dive into like what makes a car appropriate for X driver and why someone buy a car. And it's just, it's a perspective you don't hear very often and it's delivered with such humor and such, um, kind of like poignancy almost that it's very entertaining to do. So if, if any of you people over the age of 18 want to go like do some adult things and listen to regular car reviews, you just look them up. Okay. And that, hard to recommend. and that's just, uh, if I go to YouTube and type, type in regular car reviews, yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Yep. It sounds funny. All right. So what have you been up to? So I just got back last week from a trip to Colorado, kind of like the Southwest Rockies, which was amazing. Um, did a whole lot of hiking and a little bit of mountain biking. Uh, I did. So I rode, um, in case my future in-laws listen to this, I really appreciate the, you know, 19, like 94 specialized M2 bike (laughs) that I was able to borrow from them for the gravel road rides. And that was a lot of fun. But after that, we did some single track and I rented a process 111 and holy shit, that is the most fun bike I've ever ridden. Yeah. It's amazing because it's like a hard tail in the sense of responsiveness and kind of like if you're on a big bike, right? And you're like, oh, I want to jump off something. You got to set up your line and you got to know what you're doing way before I actually do right. it. Whereas on a hardtail, just... yeah, you can kind of be like, oh, I'm going to bunny hop now and it's going to happen. Um, but on a hard, on my hardtail, I'm quite frequently like, oh, I want to jump off that. But the landing sucks or the takeoff is nasty or I can't see the landing. What am I going to do? Well, the process 111 it it blends the responsiveness of a hardtail with the forgiveness of a uh, full suspension bike. So basically everything turns into a flow track and you just kind of send stuff. And it's, it was very fascinating, entertaining to ride. Hmm. I quite enjoyed that bike. How did you do with elevation? So we coming from like 500 feet. Yeah, it was a whopping, um, I, so I just did a ride today and my highest elevation was 680 feet, which is pretty aggressive for you flatlanders out there. Um, 
But no, but we we spent the first five days at or above 10,000 feet. Uh, and then we counted it in mountain biking towards the end of the trip. So I was kind of acclimated to it and I didn't really notice it too much. Um, what I did notice, however, was the complete lack of humidity because we did like, we did a shuttle ride and it was about 18 miles point to point. And it, you know, it kind of ride down along a ridgeline of this Canyon, right? And you get to the bottom of the canyon and ride it back out. And in Tennessee, in the summer, if you go out and ride, you start your ride and you're dry. And then you finish your ride and, like, you know, you can wring out your jersey and it's it's terrible Mm -hmm. and disgusting. But in Colorado, you know, we get to the bottom of the canyon. And all the people I was riding with, they take their jerseys and they take them off and, like, dump them in the snowmelt creek that's just freezing. (laughs) And put them back on. And I'm like, guys, why are you trying to make yourselves wet right now? This is a terrible idea. It's horrible. You know, but when in Rome, right? So I do it. And then we get back to the car like an hour later and we're dry again. And I'm like, what the hell? How does this even happen? I don't understand how humidity works. I mean, I do understand, obviously, but it's just. To see it actually happen. like Yeah, it's those things that you're like, man, I wish that I didn't have 85% humidity during the day. And I could actually like my sweat would function like it was supposed to. Yeah. It's crazy with the, you don't really notice it as much if you're living in Colorado and then you notice it when you, obviously when you go, I did um, go from Colorado to back to my family back in Wisconsin. And then I'd ride there. Right. And you forget about it in Colorado. Then you go back and it's, there's no way to train for that humidity. It knocks mm-hmm. out all your elevation, all the training you're doing at elevation and riding elevation. The humidity just kills it, right? That it yeah. just offsets any gain that you get because you're within an hour, your body's so used to it just being easy to use the sweat process mm-hmm. is just doing what it's supposed to. And it's just really easy. And it gets your skin, evaporates, cools it down, whatever. Then you get to Wisconsin and you're, like you said, it's just a swamp, right? An hour in, you're just soaking, dripping, dripping, dripping with sweat. And your body has not been trained for that. Yeah. It was definitely a thing. Like even after 10 days, you know, I was not completely acclimated, but relatively acclimated to the altitude. And we went out and it was probably like, call it 82, 85 degrees outside. Um, and we rode and everyone I was riding with, was you know they were from native Colorado, and they were just like, "Oh, it's so hot! I need to like take a break and calm down for a bit." And I'm like barely breaking a sweat, you know, because it's so effective. And I don't even notice the heat. I'm like, "This is a beautiful day outside," and they're having legitimate like heat stroke issues. <laughs> so it, it's kind of funny to me how the yeah. adaptation goes both ways. Yeah, exactly. So you oh. you said future in laws. Did I know that you were? Are you engaged? I'm not engaged. Oh, okay. Um, this is. But my girlfriend and I have been dating for it'll be three years in November. Okay. Um, so there's that whole kettle of fish. <laughs> okay. Just making sure I didn't miss something there. No. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't I didn't propose on top of Matt or anything. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> gotcha. All right. So how was that uh overall? Are you pretty happy with the trip? Oh, hundred percent. I I've never like Maybe it's just because ever since high school, I've gotten more and more into being like outdoors and that kind of recreation and stuff. 
but I've never been to a place that felt more like home when I hadn't been there before. I mean, Southwest Colorado, it just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's everyone there, you know, they mountain bike or they kayak or they ski or they hike all the time. And it's just kind of, it's nice to be at a place where when you ask them what they did that weekend, they say, oh, I spent it outside. And mm-hmm. they don't like look at you funny, right? Because like at least where I live and work now, it's like I'm speaking in a whole different language to my coworkers. When they're like, oh, what do you mean you like biked for four hours? That sounds terrible. Why would you ever do that? They have cars for that, you know? And it's, just, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a bit silly, but well, yeah. I don't see along those lines. I don't see other people out on bikes ever here right <laughs> i saw yeah. two people on the bike path but uh, they're totally recreational you know what i mean it's either they're totally recreational or they're riding a bike because they have to well even further than that <laughs> like you have bike have paths it. right like i you know yeah there's a bike path yep right like i i work in nashville which is relatively bike friendly um but i live about an hour west uh in like very rural middle tennessee and there's just bike infrastructure i mean walking infrastructure doesn't happen. We have no sidewalks. So trying to bike from A to B is damn near impossible. Yeah. But that's cool. Which is frustrating, but whatever. So did you leave there thinking, man, I have to come back here. I don't want to go home. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my girlfriend and I were trying to like angle our careers such that we can live in a place like that as soon as possible while we're still young enough to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, You can enjoy it until you're older. Yeah. Right. But you know, as much time there as possible, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Better way to phrase that. So do you have any more trips coming up? No, I kind of, I, I blew all my vacation days. <laughs> yeah, and you were down. You know, back to back yeah. stint. Yeah. <laughs> so. Where were you? Belize or something? I was in Belize, yeah, which yeah. is a, uh, a beautiful country. I recommend a lot of people go and visit. It's also pretty easy to get to. Like it sounds exotic, but it was a shorter flight and a cheaper flight to go from Nashville to Belize city than it was from Nashville to Durango, Colorado. What? So yeah. Right. How long did it take to get to Belize city? Uh, we, it was like 40 minutes to Atlanta and then like just under three hours to Belize city. Wow. Yeah. Cool. It's pretty cool. I'd recommend looking it up. Check it out. That's where I was thinking when you, you mentioned the future in-laws, that's why I was thinking I missed something with the Belize trip. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, yeah, I, it's kind of a running joke, I guess, but it's whatever. All right, so you wanted to know what I was doing, but it's going long, so I'll make it quick. Um, I so long story short, if you're a listener and you've been listening to other shows that I do, probably Apex Nutrition, I mentioned it. Other shows, probably Riding Gravel, I've done it. Um, but last year, so I tried really hard. Basically, I tr- what, here's what happened is I tried really hard last year. My wife, uh, let's see, we moved to Western North Dakota from Colorado at uh, like September two years ago, t- September 2014. And she was uh, working for a public accounting firm that she worked for in Denver for several years. And she opened up an office up here and was working basically six, seven days a week, like all day, every day kind of thing. Right. So I was home. The kids went daycare three days. We had to put the kids in daycare for three days a week. It was just too much nighttime weekends and all that stuff. 
So I, but all the other times so I'd pick them up, I'd be home all night until she, you know, with the kids, put them down in bed and she'd be home. And then I'd do the same thing on weekends. I just never had any rest. And I had this great idea that like over the winter, I'd take a little break and then I'd get, I was, uh, get a coach and like crank it up and like try to do some cool stuff. Right. Well, you can already see it's a recipe for disaster. Um, recipe for just overdoing it because I was trying to do all my work, all my business stuff at the same time. And she's, you know, was doing all that kind of stuff. And, um, here I am at like one o'clock in the morning on the Wahoo kicker trainer out in the living room, trying to like do whatever I can to like get today's workout in. Right. So that just kept adding up, kept adding up. I did a Schwamigan 100 last June and that race, I, I had a really good race. I was feeling really good, and I, I got to the point where I was pretty good. I was fifth overall in that race. Um, so, and on a single, I was second single speed. Um, anyhow, so my point is, at, like, I was feeling good, and then I got done with that race and was kind of training, you know, rested up a little bit and trained through to the next, which was the Tatanka 100. And, um, uh, that race was really hot. I was starting to feel kind of run down, like sick. Just, I was obviously I was tired, right? It was all catching up and stress. I was stress was through the roof and just, uh, and I buried myself. It was not a good day. I really buried myself. Like I was sick after that for a couple of weeks where I'd have to, I'd come home after that weekend and like, it'd be like six 30 at night and I had to go to sleep. So I was just, I was tired. I was so exhausted that I had to go to sleep. It was like that for two weeks where I was like seven o'clock comes around. I either have to have like mega amount of coffee or I'm just out. And it was really bad. So then I made the really poor decision of going and doing the Mata Hay 100 because I had signed up for it. It was right down the road. Like it's my home trail, right? <laughs> I was like, well, I'll see how I feel leading up to it. And then if I feel okay, I'll just go and try it. Right. Give her a go. And so I did that and that turned out to be a pretty big, pretty bad idea because it was really hot like really hot as in 110 degrees hot and uh i made it to whatever it was like mile 90 i think it was just it was just bad it was a bad idea i felt sick and uh that really buried me to the point where i just basically didn't touch bike for several months and yeah. And actually I was having problems. Like if I'd play racquetball for a couple hours, like I'd go home and I like, I have to take a nap cause I was tired. If I'd go run for, for a short amount of period, if I go try to bike for like an hour, I was just done like physically just tired. Right. Mm. Um, and that's bad because I have to stay up all night to like do my work. Right. And, um, so uh, get to, what is it now? July. So maybe two months ago, like the beginning of May, end of April, I started getting back in the bike, nothing special. Like most of the time, all I do is ride like an hour. Like I go really hard, you know, just go out half an hour to an hour, whatever I can and just go hard and do whatever repeats I can. And, uh, so I just been doing that up until now. And in two weeks, uh, we're going back to Wisconsin in two weeks. I'm doing the Wasa 24. Uh, I'm going to do the 24 hour solo, <laughs> but my point is like I've done the race several times. I've done it solo several times. I've done the 12 hour to six hour. It's just a really good deal. Um, so I just wanted to go and see what it was like to just go and just try to ride the whole time. Right. 
Um, mm-hmm. So my point, that's the whole story. But my point is I've been feeling really good. And to get ready for that, I've, I like this weekend, I kind of just said, okay, I'll just do what I can and time-wise and put it all together. And so Friday night, I rode an hour, did some hill repeats on the fat bike. Fat bike is really good for that because it makes you, you know, it's heavy and rolls like crap up a hill. Um, so I did that. And then Saturday, yesterday I did, uh, like a three, it was like, I don't know, a little over a three hour ride. And this is all gravel roads just outside of town. I don't see any people. I see more like today I saw more sharp tail grouse than I saw vehicles out in the gravel roads. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so yesterday it was a little over three hours today. It was, and I was bonking hard yesterday cause I didn't have anything to eat. I worked all day and I came home. I was like, stuffed my face with what I forgot what it was. And I went out and rode. I was just, I was done at the end of that. Totally done. Cause I went pretty hard. And then today I did the same. Well, I went out and I did like four hours and 15 minutes. I don't know. It was 60 miles out in the gravel roads and it was fantastic. Like some of those clients, like for here, the climbs, I mean, the biggest one is like 600 feet in four miles, mm-hmm. but it's rolling. So you're pedaling basically the whole time. So Anyhow, so it was a really good weekend, uh, getting, you know, whatever last ditch effort to get in, you know, just saddle time. So I'm comfortable sitting on the, on the bike and pedaling the whole time. And so we'll see, see what happens in a couple of weeks. I can't guarantee anything. My, my whole goal is just, just to show up and try to ride all day. So I'll be going slow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's more than most people can do. So yeah, there you I, go. Yeah. But it's. It's not going to be pretty. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, so I don't really have any expectations other than just go and try to do it all night. That's it. Well, they got a good story. So, so yeah. All right. So we've, uh, so that's, that's the update. We've blown through half an hour already. <laughs> yeah. Well, our listeners have long commutes. So it's yeah, okay. I know, I know. <laughs> all right. right. So let's get, to, some people are already like, man, just get to it. All right. Tune in your suspension. Let's, uh, Let's play you be the engineer and I be the person asking questions. <laughs> sure. Right. Mr. I'm on a rigid bike. I know what this mention is. Well, <laughs> well, here's the thing is, yes, I, I do ride a, a rigid single speed bike. And really what it comes down to it, it is there's an obvious disadvantage when it comes to technical. Let's see. It's not even technical, but it's just more of like a downhill. Mm-hmm. So anything that's downhill and technical or bumpy or whatever, obviously you're going to lose a little bit of your time on that. Um, it's flat and turny with some bumps in it and stuff. You can make up a ton of time through that. No problem. No big deal. I do it because it's simple. It's cheap. And I don't have to worry about a thing because right now in my life, like the last thing I need to do is change out, you know, seals on the thing, change out the oil, do all maintenance work on it. I just, I don't have the time and I don't have the money to be messing around with that. That's what it comes down to. So anyhow, so yeah, so I don't have really have anything to say at the moment of uh, anything new suspension wise. So yeah, I'm just going to ask questions. All right. Well, let's jump into it then. Um, Okay. So there is sort of an underlying trade-off that exists amongst basically every tuning choice you could make, whether that be tire pressure, rebound dampening, compression damping, um, spring rate, whatever, right? And that is that softer things have more traction, whereas firmer things have more control of that traction. 
Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, so you can kind of think. Yep. Yeah. So if you kind of keep that trade off in mind, you know, if you're on a, let's say you're on a downhill bike, right? And you're like, oh man, I want the most traction. You set it up 50% sag, super low spring rate. You're just kind of like, you'll, you'll never break loose attraction, but every time you hit the brakes or try and, you know, put some force into the bike, it's just going to flop all over the place and you're not going to have any control over it. Whereas the flip side of that is a rigid bike. Whereas you have total control of what the contact patch is seen, but your traction is, is minimized, right? Exactly. So that's something to keep in mind kind of as you go through these things. Um, can I stop you? Can I stop yes. you? Um, so we have some listeners that don't know what sag and rate tuning rate are. Can you give a, like a one sentence description of both so that listeners that are just starting, cause what happens is we get a lot of people that say, well, I'm just getting back into bi- mountain biking after not doing it for 15 years. Yeah. So just the one sentence on each to explain what those two are. Sure. So I'll like, I'll, what was the second one? I didn't hear you. Tuning rate. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a, no, you said, rate uh, no, you said, uh, not tuning rate. Uh, Spring rate, sorry. Spring rate, yeah. So, okay. So, spring rate is, um, and I'll just kind of glance over this. I'll come, we'll catch back up to it later in the episode, as well as the Lau Forks episode had quite a bit of <laughs> yeah. information on this. Um, so, let's say you had 100 millimeters of travel. Uh, SAG is the percentage of that travel that you use when you're just sitting on the bike in a static position, right? So you're just hanging out on the bike, getting ready to pedal or doing whatever you do. And let's say that you have your, your 75 millimeters left of bump travel. So that's your wheel can move up 75 millimeters closer to your body and you closer to the ground than where it is right now. So that is what we'd call 25% sag. And if you ever read any reviews of shocks or bikes, whatever. They'll talk about percent sag. And that's kind of the, that, that, that's the, that's the universal language we use in the bike industry to talk about these things like spring rate. And that's how you can kind of normalize your experience to other riders and bikes. Right. So for example, Ben, um, how much do you weigh? 180. So you're 180. So if you were on a bike, right, and you're on a full suspension bike and you adjusted the setup, you know, all your your front fork and your rear shock, all the air pressure so that it felt like the bee's knees, right? And then me weighing 220, I want to be like, man, I want to do what Ben is doing. If I just jump on your bike, you have it's going to travel gone. Yeah, it's going to feel terrible, right? So I would set it up to the same percent sag. And that would lead to the same um, ride frequency, which we'll get to in a minute what that means, uh, so that we have kind of like, so that dynamically speaking, the bike rider system is the same, right? Um, And in terms of bicycles, spring rate and sag, they're not the same. Like, you know, 35% spring rate makes no sense, but they are, there's like a one-to-one correlation, right? So... Um, you can kind of pick whichever one you want to talk about when you're talking about bikes, talk about sag. So talk about sag. 
Um, all you have to know is that for every sag, there is a spring rate and rider weight combination that makes that work. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. I just want to slow down sometimes and let, uh, explain those basic terms that sometimes we take for granted for a lot of the beginners. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, awesome. And also I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that have been writing for like four years or 10 years and have no idea what SAG means. So it's not just near writers. It's, it's a, a interesting sort of literacy that does not come standard. Um, okay. So a little bit of disclaimers slash caveats. Uh, what I'm going to do on this episode is kind of walk through how I tune. Like if you just hand me a bicycle and you're like, Hey Phil, you know, make this work for you or make this work for me in a short amount of time with very little like hard data. Um, I want to work you through that, that sort of tuning approach. And the main caveats for that is that I tune my suspension for an optimal performance for my riding style in short high speed events. And what that means is I'm not talking, you know, so things like rider comfort, and things like, I mean, basically rider comfort, they don't factor into how I tune my suspension that often because I don't really, the suspension setups that I do, they probably wouldn't work super hot if you were doing like, you know, a 24 hour race or a 12 hour race because you might start to get tired and need a little more forgiveness, right? Um, so I'm talking to the enduro guys. I'm talking to the downhill racers. I'm talking to the cross country racers. I'm talking to the weekend warriors, you know, like less than four to six hours. That's where my kind of sweet spot is. As far as this, people, this philosophy is approach. Well, that's kind of my thought, right? So, Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, and my kind of writing style, it places, you know, I kind of like to jump over stuff and I like to boost different jumps and features. Um, and I'm pretty comfortable with a bike that starts to slide. So what that means is that my riding style, it places high demands on bicycle responsiveness. So if I say jump, bike says jump right away. There's no delay, none of that. Um, and it's relatively low demands on something that we call a traction margin. So the traction margin is, let's say that it takes, um, oh, 50 pound force of, you know, force at the tire patch to get you around this turn, right? And your tire is capable of producing in, in that given loading condition and like, dirt and tire pressure, all that mess. It's capable of producing a hundred um, pounds of force. Then we would call that a traction margin of two, right? So that means that you could go around twice as fast and still not get that tire to slide, right? I personally, I'm very comfortable with tires sliding. Um, some people aren't, that's totally fine. So keep that in mind. Like if, if you pointing your bike in a direction and it not going there is a deal breaker for you, then this sort of tuning approach isn't going to quite work out for you. Right. So that's something to keep in mind as we go forward. All right. Um, 
So anyway, so for modern mountain bikes, sag and spring rate, they can't be tuned independently, um, which is what we talked about earlier. Right. Uh, which, interestingly enough, is not necessarily true in race car life. Uh, or, you know, so basically what that boils down to is in a race car, because of how usually you set it up such that you have suspension components that can alter where the car is sitting in terms of ride height without adjusting sag. So like a lot of bikes they do like the treks, I think Trek does the Mino link or whatever, right? Where you can, or like the flip chip where you can do a, a, uh, high geometry and a quote unquote low geometry. So what that's doing is that is adjusting ride height relative or independent of sag and spring rate. So that's something that not many bikes do, but it's kind of useful to have. Um, small tangent. Hmm. Uh, so this is something that the next like five minutes, if all you care about is how to make your bike go fast, just like skip forward five minutes and be fine. Um, but for those of you who are actually interested in the science and engineering about this, um, and I don't think like, they, I, I think they are if they're listening to this show. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm hoping, right? You might have scared um, them off with the first twenty five minutes, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. So let's talk about something that we call ride frequency. So we touched about this in the episode about loud forks. Um, and again, this is all assuming a constant wheel rate. So a wheel rate is the spring rate that is seen at the axle. And it's equal to the spring rate at the shock times the motion ratio squared. So the motion ratio is, let's say your wheel moves three inches and your shock moves one inch. That is a motion ratio of three to one, right? Yeah. So, um, the kind of main takeaway from that is if you look at a progressive spring, which is any air shock is a progressive spring plus a digressive linkage, you can get to a linear wheel rate. So a lot of journalists will talk about, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put up motion ratio graphs and be like, Oh, look, the, the suspension goes progressive and then it goes digressive and then it's linear. Therefore your suspension does this. Um, what they're forgetting is that they're assuming that you basically have a coil shock, right? Because a coil shock actually is totally linear through its travel, but an air shock is not. So you kind of need to take in to figure out how the bike's going to feel. You need to figure out, you know, it's, it's the shock plus motion ratio, which is the same reason why you can't go about, or you can, but you don't want to go about taking a bike that is designed for a air spring and putting a coil shock on it. Like it's going to feel a lot more supple quote unquote and, you know, plush or whatever that means, but it's not going to be performing as designed and probably not going to be as fast. So, you know, it's, you have to look at the whole picture, right? And that's kind of like a main theme of the show is that whole picture is important, right? It's going to end up like those car guys. Somebody's going to do that with a video and say how nice it rides. Oh, I mean, (laughs) look at any form. I mean, any, any modern sort of like aggressive trail bike and someone has sort of coil on it and told you how much better it was. It's like, well, 
no, let's stop it. I don't care. Um, Just stop. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the ride frequency is it's the natural frequency of the bike spring. You know, the, the bike and rider mass plus the wheel spring system, right? So, and that is a way that we can compare uh, sort of spring rates across different bikes and riders, different vehicles, all these different things, right? So that's kind of getting back earlier, Ben, you know, when you said that you weigh 180 pounds. And let's say that there's a fork out there that works well for you at 65 PSI. You know, if I go and put 65 PSI in my totally different fork and totally different rider, I want to be like, that Ben has no idea what he's talking about. 65 PSI is a terrible PSI. It's the worst. Um, so what I need to do is I need to compare ride frequencies. Um, and that's not necessarily an easy thing to compare. It's just that, you know, if, if you set yours up to a 25% sag, Um, and I set mine up the same way and we both have a linear spring rate or a linear wheel rate, then we're going to have a good time, right? we're all going to have, you know, we can kind of talk the same language at that point. Um, and then just kind of, I guess for listeners information, some typical values for ride frequencies for automobiles, um, for a passenger car, you're looking at anywhere from. 0.8 0.8 to like 1.2 hertz of ride frequency. So that means that if you go, if you take the shocks off a car and you go and like run over a speed bump, it's going to oscillate at roughly 1.2 cycles per second, right? That's what hertz means. Uh, and then you have a non aero driven race car. So that's like a Formula SAE car or a touring car or like a spec Miata car. They're roughly around three hertz, which is right about where most um, like trail mountain bikes are. And then you have an aero car, which is like a Formula One or an Indy car, and they're sitting at right around five hertz. Which, to kind of put that in perspective, if you had a 120 millimeter trail bike, like a tall boy or something, that would be roughly 10% sag to kind of get that same, like, you know. Firmness of suspension, right? So it's kind of cool, I think, to look at is sag to frequency. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier, if you had a 120 millimeter trail bike at 25% sag, that's right around three hertz of ride frequency, which is a like non-aero car, right? So it's actually like, you know, again, mountain bike, race car, similarity, there's a direct correlation there, and we can compare that with this number that we call a ride frequency. So at like 40, 40 or 45%, well, like 45% sag, you'd be looking at like a Toyota Corolla. Yeah, actually more or less. Yeah. If you're, if you're on like a downhill bike with a 50% sag, you're at like Corolla levels of ride frequencies. Okay. So yeah, I I think that's kind of cool to, you know, be like, Oh, how, you know, that there is this number that kind of allows a direct comparison between a Corolla and a high performance mountain bike, right? You kind of find a middle ground, which is nifty. Um, and if you want more discussion about the frequency and that type of thing, go back to that Lauf episode and listen to that. 
Yeah. Or, I mean, if you have questions that were answered there, um, shoot me an email and I'll put it. Because we're going to do, I think, some more with the suspension yeah. design stuff. Right. So we could talk about this. that. Yeah, we could talk about more suspension too. So if you have any more right. questions. But yeah. Yeah. First, go back to listen to that LOLF episode because we really discussed quite a bit of that. And it'll give you a good background. Sure. All right. Um, so I'm about to get into like exactly how I set up my suspension, like how I do it. So is there any questions you have about what we covered so far? Not, no, I think we're good. And I think, uh, I think covered what listeners would be thinking. So I think we're All right. good. Sounds good. So, okay. Here is, here's how I set up my bike. So I set my sag at roughly 25% on the fork. Um, and for a single pivot bike, the same in the shock, right? But it varies based on suspension design. And that's purely because on some design, some designs, namely the VPP or DW link or other many link designs, the suspension, the kinematics, which is a fancy way of saying how things move and react to force, they change pretty dramatically throughout the travel, right? So they're very sensitive to sag. So if any of you guys have a Santa Cruz or an intense or a giant, whatever, um, you know, you might find that your bike pedals wonderfully at 25% sag, but 30% pedals like garbage. That's because the, the way the, you know, chain tension force is acting on the bike, um, is changing quite a bit as the suspension goes through. And we'll try and cover that um, in a future episode, but that's something to keep in mind is that some bikes are very sag sensitive. Uh, And as a general rule, the shorter the links, the more sensitive the design is to sag point, right? Um, Something to keep in mind. Uh, So basically set up your bike such that when the suspension is sagged, so when you're actually on it, and like, you know, whether it be in your pedaling position or in your like quote unquote attack position, right? If you're more of an enduro racer, uh, the geometry and suspension response is where you like it to be, right? So now we kind of come to damping. So the function of damping, as noted in the episode about Lauf, is to dissipate energy. So it's to make sure that you don't like pogo stick down the trail. Um, and you kind of have some semblance of control, all that stuff. Uh, it's amazing how many people do that though. They don't have any idea. (laughs) That's the way I've just always ridden the trail in my bike. (laughs) (laughs) Um, also I will come back to this, but this point cannot be iterated enough, which is that this whole discussion is assuming that you actually have a, suspension that is freshly maintained so you have a minimum amount of stiction your damping uh, your damper is working as expected uh your spring is working as expected and all the knobs do stuff right so i think for this entire show the entire engineer's corner i think we're gonna assume listeners if you're listening just assume that your shit works right okay yeah. And if it doesn't work right, right, none of this stuff is going to make sense. You're going to have a sad time. Right. Exactly. Um, Yeah. But like I, you know, I set up my baseline stuff right after a rebuild. So that's something you find. Okay. Um, 
Well, that way you have a baseline too. You know exactly if if something starts to act funky, you you know something's up. Exactly right. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, okay, so low speed. So whenever you read marketing material or review, you'd be like, "Oh, low speed compression, high speed compression. What does it all mean? I don't understand." Um, so low speed is how the vehicle responds to low shaft speed or low frequency input. Uh, and that, that is shaft speed in terms of like the fork speed or the shock speed, right? It has nothing to do with how fast the bike is moving. So you can have a high speed suspension event at two miles an hour and you can have a low speed event at 30 miles an hour, right? So don't get confused by like, oh, well, I was going fast. So my high speed compression, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. They're not correlated at all. Um, low speed is how it responds to weight shifts, brake dive, pedal bobs, uh, loading up the face of jumps, pumping through berms, um, how it responds when you're like, you know, really like G outs or going through berms, stuff like that. Uh, that's low speed compression and rebound high speed compression rebound. Uh, so high speed damping is how, it responds to high frequency input. So that's bumps, um, mainly just bumps, as well as if you were a, you know, if you were Bender in 2004 and you were like hucking to flat, right? That would actually, if, if you were on like an eight foot drop to flat, that kind of, by the time you're traveled eight foot due to gravity, you're moving pretty fast. And so that kind of response could actually get into your high speed circuit. Um, but that's more of an, that's more of a exception or an edge case than anything else. So don't worry about that. Um, anyway, so to tune the suspension thoroughly with actual science and precision and rigor, you need like a lot of data and a data logging system and a lot of graphs so if you ever look at like, you know, spy shots, quote unquote, from like push industries or a team bike where they have those funny looking sensors and everything, what they're doing is they're gathering uh, shock position through time, acceleration, stuff like that in order to answer these questions, you know, to the final 100 percent. Right. And get like, oh, man, like this is as good as it can be. And we know everything the suspension is doing and how it's doing it and the frequencies, all that mess. Right. But you don't have time for that and you don't have money for that. You don't know what's going on. So don't worry about it. It's not important. You can get, are there any, is there any tools that you use or are you just doing all this stuff just because you like doing spreadsheets and data and numbers and calculations? Um, what do you mean in terms of tools? I don't know, like apps or I saw, and he didn't dig into it enough to understand what was all going on, but I saw Sh- uh, SRAM just purchased or got the rights to the some. There was a, some device used to. Tune oh your, yeah, tune your fork. that was actually that was pretty cool. I yeah, enjoyed that. Now it's being produced at the Quark uh, facility in South Dakota. Yeah, so and I don't know what I that don't... is. Is that some type of tool to? to dial that kind of thing in. I'll have to look at it more now that we've talked about this. Um, we could check it out. Sure. So basically what that tool is, right. Is it, 
it's a sensor that plugs into your um, air pressure chamber mm-hmm. on your fork or your shock. And then it records like, you know, let's say 100 times a second sampling rate. Um, it records the pressure in your shock or your fork. And what it's doing is through that pressure change, it's like guesstimating and very sophisticated guesstimating. It's guesstimating the actual position of your fork. And then it takes that data and like passes it through a bunch of sciencey stuff and kind of rules and theories about what the programmer thought it should do. And then it says, Hey, I've noticed that you're probably a little bit under damped or over damped or whatever. You should adjust your suspension accordingly. Right. Okay. So um, it is, that would be a good tool to do some of this that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So I would definitely qualify that under like legit tools. Okay. Um, I, in my opinion, it is something that unless you're racing enduro and demanding or like downhill and demanding a lot from your suspension, I wouldn't fuss with it too much. I don't think that I think there are better places to spend your money and your time. Yeah. Uh, but we're talking to a bunch of people that love gear and they love they any type of thing like that. It, they are attracted. Sure. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, it, so- could, it could be anything. I mean, you could say that about and I, do say that a lot about parts and discussions and this tire and like doing this part or it could be every type of thing. But what it comes down to is some people just like to, to tinker. They like to spend the extra money to see how something works. Mm -hmm. They spend the time tinkering around with that, like this device that we're talking about. And I forgot the name of it. Um, and I'll, I'll put it in the show. I'll find that article and put it in the show notes. But, and that's what it comes down to is, is people like to, they don't care if they're not the enduro top of the line enduro racer, who's going to get the maximum benefit out of this. They just want to see relative to what they've been doing. What is it going to do? Well, so. And I think that's, that goes to the heart of any of these discussions, right? I mean, everybody wants to see relative what, you know, that's why Strava is cool. How am I doing relative to my, you know, to the 40 year old across the country that did the same right. thing relative to myself from last ride, you know, well, it's, so it's like that. I, all of it. I guess I would caution that it's not like Strava or a power meter. Well, I know, but in the sense that it like measures output. Um, but no, I see what you're saying. Like if, if you really want to like get down and cause you know, I'm, I'm a hundred percent a data whore and I really enjoy yeah. like looking at data and doing cool things. Uh, so it's definitely not a bad product if that's yeah if you have the money like to do it at. I mean yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I de- it it gets my from the very little I know about it, it gets my seal approval yeah um but you I like guess like idea. yeah um and that's pretty close to what you would that's like a middle ground between the approach I'm about to describe as well between the approach I'm about to describe and a full data logging system okay it's kind of like you know best of both worlds I guess. Yeah. So, well, it's like that, but if you wanted that, you'd have to spend like 10 times the amount of money. Then yeah. Right. And so, it's, and that yeah. becomes prohibitive <laughs> right. for most everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so, you know, let's, let's say for sake of argument that you had this awesome data logging system, right. Um, and you had linear potentiometers and accelerometers and GPS and all that mess. Uh, and you had all these graphs and knew what you were doing. The other side of that coin, or the other part of the equation rather, is that the data needs to be generated with a 
with very repeatable efforts on very repeatable courses, which and this gets back down to the you know human factor, um, isn't something that really exists outside of the professional level, right? So let's say that you go out and you do 10 runs, right? Well, your last four runs are going to be slower because you're tired and you can't do five runs each day because the next day the weather's going to change or the dirt's going to be different. It's going to be slower or faster or more traction, less traction, right? So I would emphasize to our listeners that it is very important to get in tune with how your bike is behaving and taking a very analytical approach to what you need out of your suspension rather than trying, like I, I would actually, this feels really weird to say coming from my background, but I would discourage the use of stopwatches in terms of suspension tuning because you're just going to end up chasing your tail a little bit, right? Like you're going to be like, Oh, well, on that last run, I was four seconds faster. So that suspension setup must be better. I must change it and do this X, Y, Z, right? Well, it's like, no, you know, because you might have been just four seconds less tired or the dirt might have been faster or maybe you found the new line over that, you know, rock garden and it was all good. So focus more on what your bike could be doing better and then how you can tune your suspension to answer that question rather than looking at data on a stopwatch. So that's kind of my main caveat right now. That would help uh, in many instances, not just suspension by the way right <laughs> um anyway so let's say you don't have the instruments you don't have the data you don't have the pro driver to ride your bike um so what do you do well if you want to get to around 85 percent of the way to like a professionally determined setup without any of that mess here's what i do so Again, this is best to do after a fresh rebuild. So, like, beginning of the season, or if you maintain your own stuff, just rebuild it and start over again. Um, and what I do is I turn my rebound to full open, and I turn my uh, all my compressions to full close. And what that does is it, like, basically it makes the bike want to settle back to where it was as fast as possible, right? And it's going to ride really rough, you have to be ready for that because it's not going to feel nice or feel plush or, you know, supple or any of that mess. It's not going to feel like that at all. Um, so, but that doesn't mean that it's slow, right? Um, oh, and then side note, uh, pro pedal or a bunch of other things like that that have the same function, different name. What they do is they lock out the low speed compression circuit. So basically, it means that the only, only, all the damping that occurs in your rear end when pro pedals on is happening through the high speed circuit. So that's the same circuit that does the like bumps and stuff, right? So it basically makes it really firm to pedaling input without affecting how it behaves in terms of uh, like bumps and stuff, right? Or without affecting it very much. Mm-hmm. So something cool to listen to. Um, anyway, so then that, what I do, I think that kind of brings, sorry, it cut you off, but I think that kind of brings it around. Cause some people like, we're not going to get the questions in this episode. I think we'll save them for next time. Sure. Uh, but yeah, that kind of brings it all around because people wonder what that is. And we even got a question 
like what it, what's pro pedal all about and there you go so we've just been talking about that and brings it all around for you yeah right um anyway so basically do that so compression full close rebound full open uh and go down a hill or do a little loop um this is ideally something that you could do so if it's shuttling in the middle of the woods that's fine like i understand that not everyone is lucky or unlucky enough to have like a two mile little circuit to do. Um, find a place that kind of encapsulates 80% of your writing in terms of roughness and like jumpiness and flow. Uh, but that you could hit multiple times in a day. Um, so do that and think about these things. So take note of how many times, where they were, when they happened, when you lost traction due to suspension compliance. So I'm not talking about there was a perfectly groomed berm and you like came and carved into it and your tire slid out. Suspension isn't going to help you. That's just a tire issue, right? You over tires. That's all there's to it. I'm talking about there's a nasty like rock garden or rooty section and you picked a line and then your bike went somewhere else because your suspension couldn't, it couldn't supply the necessary compliance to allow your tire to do the job. Right. Um, so take note when that happened and then take note of how your bike responds to input under like pumping and jump preload and stuff. Uh, <clears throat> so, big, um, yeah, and kind of like figure out how that feels. Uh, a little aside here, if you get to this point where your compression is full firm and your rebound is full open and you think your bike feels awesome, you need to sell your bike and they need to buy a hardtail <laughs> because you're not going fast enough. Um, if at this point your suspension feels like the bee's knees, it means that you're not going fast enough that your suspension is giving you any benefit and you're just carting on extra weight. So go faster, get a hardtail, like learn to ride. I don't know. Do something else. Um, you know what? At the end of the day, all of this discussion, whether it's this show or any discussion, you know what it comes down to? What's that? It's just spend more time and pay attention more to your own things than you do others. Right? And That's also true. you will probably f- come to the conclusion after time what the best answer is for you. Yes. Yeah, because I mean like – so. You know, I guess compatibility aside, I I rode my main bike with a hardtail, um, and I rode that process one eleven, and I was like, oh man, there are definitely places on this trail where I'm going faster and have more traction due to the suspension than you know I I couldn't have carried that line on my hardtail, and that gets me excited because it means that I'm going fast enough, and I'm not limited by my only by my talent or my like, you know, cojones that like, I'm actually getting benefit of the suspension. So if you, if you can't compare contrast, you know, like if your only bike is a full suspension, um, it's kind of harder to do, Yeah. but get out to some demos. Yeah. If you, if you can get on a hard tail or even better, a rigid bike and you can ride them back to back and be like, Oh, this place is where suspension makes a difference. 
and this is where it doesn't, that will lend you some insight into kind of what we're talking about here. So I would recommend that. Um, to tune your suspension adequately, you're out of hard tail, <laughs> which sounds kind of silly, but whatever. Um, anyway, so basically what you do is you'd be like, oh, well, on three or four places down that run, I tried to hit a line that I normally hit and my bike just wouldn't do it. It lost traction. So what you do then is you loosen up your compression damping, right? You do it like one or two clicks at a time or whatever. Um, and the flip side of that is if you don't like how your bike is responding to the pumping, if it's like trying to buck you off or the rear end is like coming up behind you and you're doing bad things, add in some rear end damping. damping. Um, and basically keep doing that until your suspension is as firm as it can be while still allowing you to have traction, right? So obviously if all you wanted is a firm suspension, you'd have a rigid bike because that's the firmest of firm, but it doesn't have as much traction as a, you know, as an enduro bike, right? So you got to strike that balance and my approach and what works best for me and kind of makes me the fastest is making it the firmest possible without getting to the point where I'm losing traction. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's kind of where we're at. Um, so that's how I do it. That was kind of a quick crash course through what makes suspension, like the, the benefits that it has. Um, I guess kind of quick circle back. Uh, suspension has two main benefits. The principle of which is to increase the contact that your tire has with the ground. And by doing so, it increases the traction your bike has, right? So that benefit is what we're primarily angling for in regards to this tuning approach, right? Is how do we make it so that your tires in contact with the ground more, you get better traction, right? Um, and then benefit number two is it's more comfortable, right? So if you're doing like a marathon race, comfort would be important and you would probably set up your suspension a little softer than you would if you were downhilling. Um, this is kind of cool. Actually, if you ever, I think pink bike and NSMB had a couple of things about this, uh, where they went out and they rode like pros bikes. And they were like, oh, the suspension is so stiff and I don't understand. Well, it's because they actually understand that if you're only on the bike for four minutes, your comfort is not as important as your control of the bike. So you give yourself as much control as possible um, while making it just soft enough to allow adequate traction. Right? Yeah. That's where we're at. Yeah. Um. Okay, and then I also want to tackle, I, I had a whole suspension myths section in my head, and then when I thought about it, I only got one myth. Um, <laughs> it's just a long myth. Yeah, but if, if anything I've said in these past five episodes, four episodes, uh, actually leads to someone having a better experience on the bike, I think this is it, and it is this. People all the time, and one, I won't name who, but one of our co-hosts said that I wasn't getting full travel, so I reduced my spring rate until I got full travel. 
That right there is a huge mistake. And here's why. Um, so again, assuming your suspension, I'm not talking about guys that they, your spring is broken and you can't push past 50%. I don't care. That's fix it. I don't care. Um, I love how you just, when, when you get to that point, you're just like, <laughs> just, I don't care. Just do something. Fix it. Yeah. No. I mean, fix it. I don't, it's, it's not relevant discussion. Uh, so full travel and bottomed out is something to be avoided, right? So everyone, everyone looks at it like a goal. It's not a goal. It's terrible. So I like that ben, clunk. Yeah. Bam, bam. Oh, the clunk is amazing. So Ben, what is a bike that's bottomed out? Uh, like, well, soon to be broken. Well, okay. So <laughs> basically when you look at it, what it is, is it is a bike with shitty geometry because your fork, instead of being a uh, 160 mil fork, is now a zero mil fork. So you've lost your head angle is super steep. Um, oh, you mean like just sitting there, like it's bottomed out, like all the way down? Well, no. So I mean, like if you were to snapshot in time a bottomed out bike, right? Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, gotcha. it, it's bottom bracket super low. Its wheelbase is short. Its its angles are all wrong. And, you know, yeah, and so at, that's, has, at that point in time, you have zero control over your bike because it's just not in its optimal position. Right. You also have you have no suspension, right? If if you bottom out on some massive G out and there is a rock there, what do you do? You have a rigid bike with shitty geometry, right? So it's worse than a rigid bike when it's bottomed out. Right. And it's every compromise of a suspension bike that being variable geometry high weight, you know, um, stuff like that. None of the benefits. Okay. So you have no can suspension. I, can I stop right there? Because I don't think in the discussion, I don't think that's the goal, right? So you, you said that <laughs> one of the co-hosts, I think what they meant is they weren't getting the full travel that they expected. It's not well, that right. I so don't, it's not that, Hey, I wasn't hitting the crown of the fork. So let's, uh, let some air out to hit it. It was, hey, I was only using this much, and maybe there was another factor. Maybe that it just wasn't riding right, or whatever, what it may, whatever it may be. I I think well, the discussion, I think the terms, maybe it wasn't clear exactly to your precise specifications to determine what uh, travel that they wanted out of that fork, sure. right? Because when he, when when I'm talking to you or people are listening to you if we're not detailed and like, if we're not specific in every term, you're going to pick that apart, whether or not you say it, but in your head, you're thinking, man, that's just, that doesn't work for my discussion. You know, um, that's why you're engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So anyhow, all right. Sorry. No, I just had to get that in there to uh, be devil's advocate. No, that that's true. Um, I guess my response to that is. So when, when I was developing, um, the the two cars I developed in terms of suspension tuning, right? We would go through and we would plot the suspension, you know, the shock position data over time. And we'd basically, we had a, a computer program and we wrote it and it would be like, all right, go through and see if any of this is kind of, first check we did to be like, are we anywhere close to what we need to be? And we look for two values. First value is 
is the shock at full length, right? And with a race car, it means that the wheel has left the ground and you're not generating grip. Obviously, mountain bike, if the wheel's off the ground, you're probably in the air on a jump and who cares, right? You're probably intentional. But on a race car, it's a bad idea. So that told us we were doing something wrong, number one. Number two was, did the displacement get to where the shock was bottomed out? Because a bottomed out car and a bottomed out bike are bad. So I guess to me, if 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 you're happy with the way the bike rides and you're like, my spring rate is good, you know, the way the bike feels and responds to input is happy, but I'm bottoming out the bike like on a regular basis, you need more travel, right? Whereas if you're happy with the bike and the way it feels and you're never that O-ring doesn't bounce off the bottom of the shock and you're not getting your whole 120.0 mils of travel, right? That's a good thing. That's where you want to be. Um, because again, a bottomed out bike is a bike that can't, a bottomed out suspension is a suspension that can no longer do its job. So that's not a goal that is in fact, in my opinion, my approach, something to be avoided. Um, it's, it's, that makes sense, right? Like see what I'm getting at here. Yeah. I, I totally see where you're getting at. I just wanted to be devil's advocate in that situation. Right. Because I don't think the explanation was fully justified, discussed. Sure. To be fair to said co-host, I did cut him off a bit purely because I knew that if I engaged fully, then he might steal material from the show. So <laughs> um, there is that. Uh, but I, I I do think that anytime you're on a ride with your friends or you're out there being that guy who is like, Oh man, I bought this 160 mil fork and I'm riding around this trail and I'm only getting 110 mil of travel. I better let using it enough. It's like, you know, go out and take that to its logical extreme, right? Go ride with your kids on the bike path and you're not going to set your suspension up for that ride such that you're using all your travel. Like, you know, you just need to go harder, go faster, find bigger trails, get a smaller bike, take your pick. Like, or, you know, if you're on a big bike and you only use half the travel, nothing to be ashamed of. You're just very well prepared. Like, don't, it, it, it's not a and sign. it works in your other situations. So, bump, yeah, exactly. traction, whatever, right. right? You like the way it feels, rides. Yep. It is, it is not a sign of, like, this is especially a big deal. Okay, full circle. The Process 111, right? Yeah. I rode that bike in Colorado on some trails that they weren't technical, but they were fast and they were all downhill. Um, and so the geometry of that bike was awesome. And the response was awesome. And I only used maybe 70 or 80 mil of that, of that bike's travel. And what that means to me is that I had a cushion for messing up, but like, you know, my, that ride was well within the bounds of that bike. And going back a few years, if you wanted a bike that could haul ass downhill and tackle single track, you know, the geometry you wanted only existed in a big bike. So you didn't have the option of 
getting a hundred mil bike with the geometry you wanted, you needed a bike with 160 mil travel to get the geometry, right? So if you set up your bike to do, do things that only needed a hundred mil travel with a 160 mil bike, and your idea was I need to use all the travel, you're going to have a very sad bike and it's going to feel very bad and it's going to feel like garbage. Yeah. So, and flip that around. If you're doing stuff, you need 160 mils and you're using your hundred, you're probably going to have a bad time. Yeah. And you're going to bottom everything and it's yeah. going to hurt. And it's, I mean, no, no, it's not good. Yeah. So then, you know, any, you need a bigger, bike. yeah. Anytime you hear someone say, I need to bottom out my fork. Let me let some air out. You slap them upside the head. It's no good. Don't do it. There you go. So, so next yeah, time you're at the listeners, next time you go to the trailhead and you hear your buddy say that, now you can lay some information on him. Yeah. Or Point him to engineer corner and we'll set him straight. Yes, exactly. So they can listen to this hour and 25 minute. You know what? Better yet. The women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Better yet. Here's the thing is the, if you're a woman and ride with a bunch of guys and you're always going to get some of the guys are always going to be, you know, the, I don't want the woman to beat me or no more. You're always going to get those kind of guys, right? Yeah. So next time you're at the trailhead and the guy that's like that says something, if you're a woman, make sure to let them know. Let tell them, tell them everything you just heard and you'll be, you'll be, uh, you'll get the last word in that one. Right. There you go. All right. So we're going to save, we have some, we hit on the pro pedal. We had a question on that, but we, um, we can just kind of run through that next time. So let's hit on the questions next time. This one's been long enough and I don't want to, I don't want to keep dragging it out with these, with these. So let's hit those questions next time. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions, comments, anything about mountain bike radio, uh, cr- whether it's criticism or uh, constructive criticism is appreciated, not just some bad email, <laughs> you know, but um, whatever it is, send me an email, ben at mountainbikeradio.com, and I read it, and I re- respond to everybody. It takes a little while sometimes to some, but uh, yeah. And if you have any questions for the show, you can email them to engineer at mountainbikeradio.com or and ben at mountainbikeradio.com. That works. All right. And anything else, Phil? Uh, I think I'm good. Okay. Uh, what are we going to talk about next time? You have an idea yet? We're going to do yeah. So um, types. Yeah, if we want to get like balls deep, uh, we can get straight into the suspension designs and VPP and four bar and why everything is four bar. Um, so that'll be fun. Sounds good. You, you, yeah, we. Um, <laughs> I don't know about the balls deep thing, but. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works for you, man. That's it's like an hour past my bedtime. I know, I know, I know. It's just funny. What it's funny what people say, what different people say uh, is in terms of that. All right, listeners. <laughs> I, I guess we'll end it on that. That'll be interesting to see the feedback. Back to the studio. Yeah. Any feedback about that can go to engineer at mountainbikeradio dot com. Uh, if you like what you hear, head over to mountainbikeradio dot com slash support mbr. You can. Find a link to our Amazon affiliate right there. So if you shop Amazon at all, I would encourage you to go there, click on that link, and use that to shop through. And what you need to do is bookmark that to the top of your screen. So every time you go to shop Amazon, click through that first. And it's free to you, but uh, you're 
products, we get a little fee for referring you over there. So that's it. All right. Thank you, Phil. Thank you listeners for sticking in there. Uh, and that'll do it. So thanks for listening. And that is another episode of engineers corner. <laughs>